Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You'll also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. CDO is, you know, the way we've thought about it uh, is a role that has evangelization, both internal and external, also revenue generation and market facing. In this conversation with Suntara Sukhavana, Chief Digital Officer of First Source, he talks about what it means to be a Chief Digital Officer and what are the various experiences and experiments that he has done that has made him ready for such a role. He also talks about his trials and challenges that he's gone through and how he believes that various moments of magic where he's learned, unlearned and relearned an ability to fail fast and recover quicker has made him who he is. Listen on. Hi Sundar, thank you for appearing in Software People Stories. Hey, thanks a lot Gayatri, nice to be here. You are, I think, the first chief digital officer who's appearing in our podcast. So you should start with telling what does the role mean? I know CDO is a fairly a new role that has come up and introduce yourself for our listeners. Sure. I mean, the chief digital officer is in, in many ways, it's, it's a new role, but it's also a very old role, right? Because uh, obviously the word digital is so used, overused and abused in many ways that you know, it's very difficult to define a, what is a CDO, what is a CTO, what is a CIO, etc. But the CDO is, you know, the way we've thought about it uh, at first source, we've constructed well-defined boundaries for this role. So there is a market facing aspect for a chief digital officer, which is about generating revenue, launching digital services that can help business operations and we'll talk about that a little bit more and there's also a cultural internal facing aspect of the role which is about making sure that uh, the organization starts to think technology and digital as integral to what they do right so the cdo role in many ways is a is a role that has evangelization both internal and external but also revenue generation and market facing. I mean, this used to be in many ways, a CIO used to do some pieces of it, but the CIO role is more internal facing to enable the enterprise. This is more about making sure that the enterprise positions itself well to service customers. Wow. It sounds more like a convergence role, right? Looking at external as well as internal and getting the organization geared up from a cultural part of it as well as technology part of it. Fantastic, Sundar. I love your way of, you know, describing the role. I think you must be the first one to <laughs> describe the role like this. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. Sure, sure. So how did you reach or be the uh, CEO? Can you just give us a brief history of your journey? Yeah, if I may, maybe I'll talk a little bit more about what this role is. Yes, definitely. Let's do that. And then then we, we go back to how I managed to, uh, you know, uh, think of this role as the future for my career. There are four, four uh, key aspects that we've defined for the chief digital office, right? Um, and I call it the digital office because I think this role is not about one person. This is about 
bringing together like-minded people that are willing to challenge the status quo and elevate our positioning in the market as a company right the first is the word automation and automation means many things to many people but in the operations world automation is about robotic process automation it is about ai it is about machine learning and it's also about analytics advanced analytics so launching all of these four as intelligent automation is is the first item in the charter right every company has this capability uh, we've done extensive work and we are trying to expand that further um, go deeper and broader okay the second second part of the second item on the charter is what is called as product table a lot of operations companies uh, you know that service customers have their own products right they build their own workflow engines they build their own analytics engines and visualization dashboard and so on and so forth and we've built our own suite of products but the second part of the charter is elevating those products to what i would call a machine first design right figuring out what is core to us what is contextual to us and how can we utilize uh, integrate with what is best out there in the in the market to bring this capability to our customers the third item in the charter is what i call partnership this is extraordinarily critical in a digital world no man is an island right so as an organization how can i partner with the best of the breed out there whether it is an automation company whether it is a technology company whether it is a product solutions company how can i partner with that ecosystem in a strategic manner to deliver value to clients the fourth piece is uh, what i call as digitally enabled contact centers uh, over the last 90 to 120 days the value of human interaction has become even more important and and traditionally people have thrown technology for all contact center i don't like talking to bots on a phone right nobody does so how can you use digital and technology to empower and enable humans to have conversations with empathy fourth item on the charter and the fifth and the last is evangelization whether it is market evangelization or more importantly creating a digital mindset for the 21000 first sources right so these are the five items on the charter that we that we created uh, under the concept of digital office wow something that is really resonating with me is uh, digital talks about combinatorial skills right because the number of skills you need to be a digital company is so mammoth now that you can't just have one person or one team it needs a, a you know it's almost like a supply chain management you need to have a supply chain you need to bring everything together so in some shape or form the digital office itself will be that integration or provider of bringing those the skills i am beginning to understand this uh, role better thanks a lot sundar sure there is another angle to it right uh, the, the beauty of uh, a digital uh, digital offices it's almost like uh, you know uh, 18000 puzzle pieces that have to come together to create this beautiful art and 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 the and the the beauty and the uh, risk associated with such a such a role is that nobody knows what that art is going to look like there is hope and belief that this art will look beautiful and there is effort to assemble these 18000 pieces to make sure that that art looks beautiful and and therein lies the fun as well right yeah. so and it's also harmony right uh, there is a moving piece uh, digital is moving so quickly the technology how do you harmonize it and how do you uh, land in the in the most effective manner and continue to adapt you you mentioned culture right how do you transform the organization culturally as well as from a mindset perspective Yeah. I mean, that is the most challenging part right it's not as easy as saying okay i move from java to angular js it doesn't work that way <laughs> yeah in fact uh, 
uh, what what I've been uh, thinking through this a little bit, and now it's become our uh, sort of our punchline, if you know. We call it digital first, digital now. And, and the reason for that is the digital first is about you know think machine first. If I, if something can be done by a machine, I will let the machine do it. But digital now is a hey, the time to do it is now. There's no tomorrow here, right? I mean, you create your own tomorrow. So we've sort of broken this down, and and I'll talk a little bit more about the strategy, right? But going back to your first question, so the journey and how how I landed up or why I decided this was the future, right? There are aspects of pure play software development, like everybody, all of us in the IT industry would have started as a programmer. You know, some of us have have gone through the years where we started with mainframes and then migrated to client server and then to you know web and so on and so forth, right? Um, so that the aspect of understanding fundamental programming is critical, right? And, and, and I was privileged enough to go through that cycle. Then you get into P&L management because, you know, the beauty of our industry and the bane of it is that you're, if, you're, if you're a very good communicator and you can sell and you're good in technology, you're then automatically a client partner. Absolutely. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the sooner we can get you off doing core work and putting you in front of clients, the better it is for business. Unfortunately, you know, the, the flip side of that is people get so far away from technology that they start talking only concepts. So that happened to me as well. I mean, right through the, after the first 10 years of my career, I felt like I was becoming what we used to call an empty suit, right? I mean, you start talking, I, you, call, you start talking so much English that you forget the math and science behind it. So then I decided to switch roles and, and I took over to be part of an enterprise IT organization. I spent about what, four or five years in India just trying to do that because I felt like I had to go back to the roots. So I got an exposure to on one side, software development, on the other side, enterprise IT. And it became crystal clear that it's easier to sell to customers than sell to internal customers, right? The, the, the challenge associated with the transformation and technology with an inter enterprise is huge. That was the second. The third piece was understanding operations world, right? How does business operations function? Why are there 5,000 people doing claims processing, right? When there are so many big systems that are supposed to do auto adjudication. Getting to know that world through the eyes of automation as the automation practice leader for Cognizant gave me a view to understanding how technology can integrate and elevate operations as it's done to. So the aspect of internal IT, P&L management, software development, operations, all these four seemed to come together and I felt like I needed an opportunity to use all of this and then learn how I can actually transform enterprises. And hence, this role seemed to bring in all of that. And I said, hey, this, this is going to be fun. Can you tell us some stories about enterprise IT management? It sounds quite fancy, right? Having a plethora of tools. I come from Infosys. Sometimes I joke that I my blood group being B positive is I positive, Infosys positive. Uh -huh. So we, have, we used to have this web apps and number of applications. I'm sure you had very similar. Is that adoption that was harder or was it more around integrating those data and tools? What was the challenge? So the biggest challenge with enterprise IT, I mean, there are many, but I'll, I'll talk about enterprise IT is like a utility. It's like the power in our house, right? Nobody realizes that it's of value until you lose the power. So it's almost like uh, it's a thankless job, but it has the ability to influence the organization and propel, propel the organization much further. The reason why CIOs, in my opinion, struggle and enterprise IT struggle is uh, degrees of separation from reality. The IT function typically looks at customers, internal customers, 
and there's a very there's a very big chance that you start looking at your functions within the enterprise as your customers so you think hr is your customer finance is your customer risk and audit is your customer but ultimately they are conduits that actually serve your real customers who are the hundreds of thousands of people in the enterprise that use your systems true the biggest challenge is as enterprise it you're so worried about pleasing this interim customer base that you forget that end user delight is what will get the organization glow so a lot of applications are designed by 12 people in a conference room to be used by 200000 people outside of there is no clear representation of what the actual pain is right and so there is glory in moving projects to production there is very little glory associated with adoption so you start seeing more and more solutions come up because there are more and more new people that form these functions so the best organizations in enterprise it are the organizations that are able to minimize this degree of separation and understand what that associate at the end wants if i am a sales guy and i'm trying to sell uh, what is my challenge is the enterprise actually helping me sell better or is it forcing me to create more and more reports that i really don't like to for somebody else's benefit and helping me to take decisions right am i are you data giving backbone to me to help make the timely decisions yeah. and make my job better yeah i think of it right i mean it, it's data data everywhere and nothing of use right people people have so much uh, so much interest and they get caught in analysis of data that you forget the objective of that analysis as a sales guy if i'm going and reaching a prospect for me to have everything in my fingertips to say hey, these are the things that have happened in the last 60 days this is what my client is going through this is the person you're meeting and all of this we have the data either inside or outside to put it all to a package and give it to the sales seldom do we think like that right the companies that do that do that really well but there are very few i am liking the idea of enterprise it being a foundational element and uh, probably th- that propelled you towards the more of operations management when you say operations management what do you mean by that i hear what you are saying 5000 people doing education or reconciliation but isn't that what our traditional dpos or bpms have been doing are are really the robo- robotic uh, process automation really challenging that are you feeling that that's how the challenge is going to be or how is that panning yeah. out i mean i've been doing rpa for, uh, since 2014 right so robotic process automation is very real okay right? okay and me and my teams have implemented over 8000 bots in production right so it is real <clears throat> but let's take a step back right the concept of technology in business operations is not new right i mean in 1990s it used to be the large erp systems what did sap and oracle and other systems promise they said hey we will automate your business process and bring standardization correct so you had big big boulders that were put in place and then within a few few years you started seeing that the boulder on the left will not talk to the boulder on the right so you had to create a custom app so then the custom app world evolved that was the second generation and in that you started seeing that hey we need people to convert this data from here and put it here so that the custom apps can actually be useful and then the bpo industry started so why does bpo happen today bpo is essentially exception processing if all the systems were supposed to do everything they are supposed to do you don't need people actually connecting these systems but over the last 10 years the biggest change is consumerization of it all of us know about this concept of my sunday night experience is much better than 
my Monday morning experience, right? I mean, I want to order a pizza, I can do it on an app. If I want to change the beneficiary on my policy, I have to hold on for 45 minutes to talk to the guy, right? I mean, it doesn't make sense. So, it, it, it's such two different worlds. And that demand for ease of doing stuff in operations is very, very real, right? Added to that, you know, everything associated with COVID and you know, a distributed ecosystem and everything else. The reality in all of this, right, is when an enterprise running operations, right, I have, for example, reconciliation, I'm doing payment processing, I'm doing invoice matching. When an enterprise reaches a service provider to say, I want you to help with transformation, you'll hear IoT, you'll hear AI, you'll hear ML, you'll hear RPA, uh, you'll hear cloud, you'll hear, you know, microservices, uh, extreme programming, all that is fine. But for the enterprise, I really don't care what technology you bring to the fore, right? Are you delivering outcomes? I want better customer sat. I actually want more efficiency. I want to reduce cost. Somehow, what, what the enterprises are getting hit with is technology overload. So if there is a way for us to demystify this technology overload and make sure that operations can actually deliver value using technology, then I think that's the holy grail. Has there been any story that you want to share when, we, when it comes to uh, demystifying technology for operation any stories that that, uh, that you want to share? yeah yeah i mean quite a few right see the, the one that comes to the top of my mind and again i'm going to an insurance uh, example right um, this is for a very large pnc carrier that used to uh, that has claims coming in from workers compensation you know people get hurt at work there's a claim raised that entire process of how that claim comes in used to be in an email or a fax or 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 a physical letter. Bunch of people open that up, read what is there, key that information into uh, in, into a system. Figure out, okay, this person got hot on the got hit on the shoulder, right? And which part of the shoulder? The entire claims processing, and then figuring out that there's a match with the, what the policy they have. This entire process was there were systems, but a lot of it was manual. We implemented automation in this end-to-end value chain. So the way the claim comes in and it is read is using NLP using machine learning, we're able to actually decipher what that information is. The amount of humans we reduced by 83%, only 13%, right? There were about 100 people, we had about, yeah, 13 people that were looking at this, only exception processing. The way the claim was matched, completely done using RPA. So the way interpretation of the text happens was done using automation. The way the claim was paid out was automated. So what was the process that had about 120 people finally had about 15 people, right? It, it took about eight to 12 months to do this, but the fact that you could use AI, you could use RPA, you could use analytics, all of this in one seamless coordination to automate that process end to end delivered value. And guess what? The process used to be done only during working hours. Now it doesn't matter because everything is automated. It can be a 24 by seven process. The customer gets his feedback within hours instead of days. So everything from customer experience to efficiency to reduce cost, it's possible, right? That's one example that comes to the top of my mind. It's not about the technologies, but it's about combining these in the right way to deliver value. I think this is what matters, right? When we when people keep talking about digital, they actually just automate the existing ones rather than thinking beyond and say, okay, why do I have to have the constraint of only calling between eight to five? I can do 24 seven. So removing those constraints is what makes things a lot more exciting, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, imagine, no, if the same COVID had hit us 20 years back, 
uh, how our lives would have been so different <laughs> compared to what it is now. It's almost, I wouldn't say it's seamless. You know, all of our regions have hit very badly as we are able to get food, we are able to communicate largely because of who we are as technologists, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember this joke, right? I mean, who's, and everybody's seen this on WhatsApp, right? And who's driving transformation, whether it is your CDO, CTO, or CIO, it's actually COVID, right? And it, 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 it sounds weirdly funny, but it's very real. Uh, I've seen more changes in the mortgage industry in the last six months in the desire to adopt technology than I've seen in the last 20 years. Because necessity, right? You have to figure out a way to make things work. So. Yeah. And I think we keep talking about digital transformation as if a couple of degrees away. It is happening today. As for right now, when I see in India, I see uh, the phone pay or even payment solution is being, is there in every and every person consumer i don't know if that level of apps and computer or decision making power is there within the enterprise the level of in personal computing so much is there but i when you look at the same enterprise level i do think that there is ways to go it's a lot yeah. happening but it is a lot more is has to happen yeah but but very true but the, the, the key question is how much of enterprise transformation is needed right and and how much of it is good to have versus uh, versus a must have see think of it this way right i look at digital transformation as three things coming together right and 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 we've tried to simplify this pretty much all the companies focus on what is in the left of a venn diagram if you were to imagine and the left of the venn diagram is uh, you know digital services i will improve my uh, automation i will do pro products and platforms i'll do workflow i will do orchestration all of that but that's only one piece of the puzzle a, a really big piece of the puzzle is what comes on the right side of the venn diagram which i call as human capabilities number one is digital mindset right and 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 what does digital mindset mean digital mindset means if i am an associate working am i actually challenging myself so that everything that is rules based Everything that is simple, I will not do. I will do what actually adds value to me, right? Meaning of labor, going back to the story of IKEA and everything else, right? So can we, can we create that mindset for people to learn, to innovate and use technology with a machine first approach? And that goes with rewarding failure. That goes with experimentation. That goes with the ability to take risks. And then on the same lines with the human capability, one is a digital mindset. The second is the domain understanding. How much of depth do we go to really understand the business? Are we encouraging our folks to go deeper and deeper into understanding why, not the what in the business? But the third piece of the puzzle on one side is the digital capabilities. On the other side is human capabilities. The third piece of the puzzle is what we call as digital methods, right? I can't take 24 months to implement a project anymore. Am I doing rapid prototyping, right? Am I using design thinking? Am I using customer journey mapping to that problem of enterprise IT and you know going to the end user? Am I actually understanding the end user's pain? And am I doing it in an iterative cycle using agile so that I can actually deliver value incrementally? When these three come together, then we call it the moment of magic happens. Whether it's large or small, you start seeing outcomes. And that also fail fast, right? What you said is ability to fail and accept that okay. This may not have been the best solution for this problem and fail and then learn from that. That, that I think now organizations are learning. See, earlier yeah. I used to be part of five-year plans, two-year plans and multi-year plan and stuff. 
now uh, we are we are moving quickly away from that and saying next three months what am i delivering what am i can i pivot from here and yeah. not point fingers at somebody i think that and seeing the change but i don't know how, how rapidly um, it is happening what is your view on it is it really happening that fast so alvin toffler you know this was in 2000 he, there's a quote that that's very close to my heart right he says the people the learned people of the 21st century will not uh, be people or the literate people of the 21st century will not be the folks that can read and write it will be the folks that can learn unlearn and relearn or if you don't have those three qualities right the ability the desire to learn the desire to unlearn and relearn you'll never be relevant you're not you're not literate to that extent i think the the ability to create an ecosystem where it's okay for people to fail is extremely important right i don't think it's an easy challenge right i, I it's it's because every every enterprise large enterprise is answerable to their stakeholders and and given this world of quarterly earnings release with stock markets and you know wall street it's always going to be a challenge for people to say that no 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 i want something tangible and quantifiable that can show value right so i think the balance between having the conviction for a long term benefit with interim results versus you know focusing on uh, you know just doing things for the heck of it right i think that balance is is very critical my view is this creating this ecosystem is tough you're not going to see immediate benefit but in the long run the most successful companies have been those that have mastered this art of fail fast learn fast reinvent yourself and keep moving right uh, and the companies that have failed to do that are history and too many of those uh, companies and, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and so like, uh, you have traveled multiple countries right you, you i know i know you when you're you're in chennai here and you moved to us and earlier before you came to chennai also you were in us triggered such location changes because uh, this is often a question from a lot of people who consider location as a particularly software right how do we decide changing location when do we do it yeah. that too we have yeah. uh, children right children are always in uk i know you have a college going kid now so almost yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah almost correct there's also there's always confirmation bias because now you have a reasoning for why you did all that but in reality a lot of it is uh, not well thought out but i'll give you an example right uh, i moved to the us in what 98 uh, between 98 and 2004 uh, we had lived in florida in tampa we moved to uh, indianapolis then we moved to denver we moved to seattle we moved to south carolina greenville we moved to long island portland maine boston and then settled down in new jersey and all wow. of this was within about five years six years so what drove that right i mean we didn't have a kid then but we said hey it doesn't matter this is our opportunity to learn right and then i was fortunate enough that my wife was she was she was okay to go anywhere as well and she left love to travel so we we, we stayed in all these places and and you know we did i did a lot of small projects but I think that gave me a pretty good exposure to the beauty of what is America, right? I mean, it's so very different. I mean, Seattle was a was very tough because it was called I don't know whether it is still the suicide capital of the world. I love the sun and I I crave to see the sun and I will never never could see it. But the the fact that we were open to travel gave me exposure to so many clients, so many different industries, so many technologies that I didn't know that I had to learn on the fly, and, and that was a very interesting part of my career. The move to India was different. It was both driven by a personal 
restriction that I had to, I wanted to spend some time with my mom uh, because we just lost our dad and I didn't want her to be alone. And it coincided in many ways with my desire that, hey, I've been selling, selling, selling so much. I want to actually try something. Okay. I, I had a client, the CIO of a large music company, and I told him, hey, I'm going back to India because I'm going to be part of the CIO office. And he said, Sundara, I'm the CIO for a music company, right? Nobody in my company knows technology. But even for me, everybody gives me an idea on how to use technology as the CIO. You're going to be part of the CIO office of a technology company, so good luck to you, right? But that that prompted the move back to, you know, the desire to go back to the roots. And then, so I think decision-making on location in this world where we are today, it really doesn't matter which location you're asked to move or take up a job from. I think what matters is, in my opinion, three things. Number one, family. Is, going, is that change desirable for your family? Right? Is it going to put undue constraints on people that depend on you and actually propel you for success? Right? That's the first. The second is, is that actually going to add value to your job? Because my belief is short-term benefits lead to long-term issues. Right? And short-term issues for long-term benefit is always worth it. Right. If, so if that career move is going to give you the benefit of better job then and better learning, then I think that's worth it. And the third thing is, uh, emotionally, is that something that you want to do? Is it your decision inherently that's driving it? Or is there an external factor that is driving you? Because eventually it boils down to that gut. And, and is that gut actually telling you that this is the right thing to do? Are you excited about this move? You know, when you sit back and think, is that worrying? Is the first thought that comes, your, comes to your mind a worry or an excitement? I think if you're able to balance these three out, the decision on location becomes irrelevant. Family, I can really relate to what you're saying, right? Family and where you are in your career. And that keeps changing, right? See, when you start off, uh, it's very easy to pack my bag and move. Not a problem at all. I didn't even, have, for my first on-site assignment, I didn't even have to think. I was all excited over the moon that, yeah, let me travel. But now when, when the same thing comes in, that you have to put all your ducks in order even before you want, you can even venture out for a three-day travel or a one-week travel, right? So I think I like that you're saying that, you know, how emotionally are you vested? Are you vested emotionally? Then it's okay to take the decision, right? Yeah. Yeah. You you mentioned that, you know, the whole digital transformation has propelled because of COVID. Any recent examples that you can think of, Sundra? So something that has uh, that has moved you, saying, I couldn't have imagined doing something like this five years back. Was that anything? Yeah, that you I mean, there are uh, quite a few, right? What comes to the top of my mind is what is happening at hospitals. Increasingly, it's become clear that the hospitals are getting, being put under pressure from both the sides. On one side, the stress associated with the inflow of patients right, um, is, is actually is very sad and it's, it's very real. Right? I mean, we don't have to explain that any further. On the other side, let's keep in mind that revenue, the biggest revenue for hospitals comes from you know, elective surgeries and elective procedures. Right? That is where they make money. On one side, all these elective surgeries and procedures are gone because it's, it's worrying because a lot of people that have to go for regular screenings are not going to the hospitals because of the fear of COVID. People don't do their elective surgeries. Pretty much all of that is pushed. 
So the revenue generating side where there's higher margins, that business is gone. On the other side, business that is low revenue, low margin, high pressure, thankless in many ways is increasing. And to compound all this, hospitals are struggling with the fact that they have to report pretty much everything to the state, to the White House, to the CDC, to the county. Yeah. Right? In a, I've never seen hospitals take up technology this aggressive. Right now, a lot of these hospitals are automating how they report all of this, right? It used to take maybe six, eight months for somebody to get convinced that, yeah, we'll do this. But now even three registered nurses doing this job is a hit because, you know, they are more valuable where people need. So the desire to take, take up automation, desire to take up technology intervention in the way services are delivered, the non-essential services are delivered off the roof, right? As an example. The same is true with mortgage. There are today, because of you know, because of the situation, the refinance rate, the refinance um, demands are so high because the interest rates have never been this crazy. So there are people that are waiting on the phone for four hours to talk to a mortgage service professional. Four hours. Oh my God! Okay. And and think right. Why am I on the call for four hours? Because I don't have anything else to do. On one side, my job is gone. On the other side, there's attractive interest rates. So mortgage service companies are used to, in my opinion, not aggressively use digital technology, but now the infusion of digital into, you know, trying to support this ramp up of volume and the preparation for what will be loss mitigation. There are going to be people, thousands of people that are going to go to forbearance and not able to pay their EMI and mortgage and loans. The way technology is now become integral to their thinking to solve this problem, I don't think this would have ever happened, you know, five years back, right? It would have always been, let me add thousand more people to solve this problem. And there is not enough time to train somebody, come have somebody on board yeah. and train, right? It's a, you've got to do it today, now. And if you don't do it, you have loss of revenue or loss of major, uh, you know, to the competition. This is also the time when security seems to be a big issue, right? When, for example, uh, last week, one um, there was a major, major phishing incident with one of my relatives. More and more it becomes digital. More and more you not only have to give the best of the uh, solution, but also it has to be secure and it has to be end-to-end -end security. It's a very, very real uh, pro problem with more hands on the deck, so to speak. Uh, when it comes to digital, I think uh, it's a it's a very uh, very very real problem today. Yeah, yeah, and and I think my view is we've not yet seen anything yet. I mean, we've not seen anything yet on the security side, right? Um, right now, there is a lot of guardrails that are being put in place for everything that is associated with uh, you know digital transformation. But the world of ransomware attacks is evolving as fast as the technology solutions to you know improve digital adoption so it is a worry it is a, it is a sincere worry it could be as simple as the dependence on you know the distributed ecosystem that has to work from home to deliver these services and the lack of security associated with phh pii information being used by people it could be credit card that is on the human side but also on the ability for a malicious software to act a business is, is extremely high. Sometimes I feel I should not think about them and think about the good part of digital. <laughs> that makes us a lot more sleep at ease, right? Yeah, I mean, we have no option, right? <laughs> it's not like there is a, there is any other way to go. So.
so i as you uh, look at your own journey right do you see some of your uh, passions in which you started off your software do you remember any early times of how you started on software yeah uh, i mean I, i remember i used to work for a tv ratings company there was this problem about uh, reporting ratings every minute for for a channel right every minute uh, reporting ratings and that was a saas program used right. to be called trp it it is it is called right now yeah. trp okay trp in the us that uh, i don't want to use the name of the client but it was a okay. major tv ratings company and uh, in a, it used to report minute by minute right every minute we used to report the uh, ratings that was a saas program that was about 30000 lines of code so i remember very well on a, a friday evening we figured out there was some bug with the code and you know things are going haywire challenge was i didn't know sas the challenge was a hey, we need to figure out what is going on uh, you know I, i i said okay it shouldn't be as difficult i mean coding is coding logic is logic and for the i started looking at the sas program and uh, by monday i had rewritten a module of it right because i didn't know where the bug was within that code but i figured out that it's easy for us to just rewrite it in the way you know so that that experience uh, it hits me hard because the ability to go into something that you don't know much but you know that you have to solve the problem uh, those 48 hours were really fun right uh, and and in those days it was a print out of the program that i had uh, that i had to go through page by page to figure out how the logic works you know uh, I, i still remember that vividly and and i wish those days were back where you could go back to the roots and start looking at code and everything else right uh, it's really fun very very cool that's how uh, at least i also started writing code with that i used to have a, a template and say okay this is right uh, and that's how we used to problem solve at least when i when we started saying that is this the right out, uh, output and how do we correctly solve it? if you do a time turner right let's say 10 years down the line when you see how will people look like particularly in the software fraternity how would people look like is it going to be similar where we all have like 12 hour 13 hour job cramming for results and doing it or are we saying that it will be more plug and play everything will be in the cloud with all these settled how do you see this panning out i mean i i in all honesty i really don't know what we know is only a directional view as to where we are going right okay. and 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 i think you know if you if you think beyond uh, the next 5 years i think it's 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 all blur right even the next 5 years is but there are certain patterns that are emerging the way we thought about software used to be somebody could go to computer science and then become a software professional those days are gone it, it, it doesn't matter um, you know there is more value for statistics and statisticians and people that understand data than people that understand semantics right because syntax coding is a commodity understanding the data behind that is where the value is because data drives decision making and everything in in the new world already is about how you utilize not just archive data but also in use data right to make decisions so the pattern around specialization on technology versus specialization on data or other domains has become you know the balance has shifted right and it's going to shift more towards understanding more of the data and the domain the second piece is creativity and the creative skill the ability to use your other brain and not just the analytical brain has always been important but somehow over the last 18 months and i think over the next 36 to 48 how are you training yourself 
to think outside the box. I think that is going to become more important. There is more value for designers in solutions than for people that can implement the design. It was always the case, but it's become extraordinarily more important. It's very simple things. I read this article about Spotify. I mean, Spotify is a brilliant example of future world. And a person had canceled the membership for premium Spotify. A playlist was created immediately after the cancellation of the membership. And the playlist read, as are all titles of the songs, if you leave me, etc. So right? the list, and maybe if somebody is, if you want to take a look at it, just Google this, it's available, that image. It's a brilliant indication of what hits the person, how the designer has thought through, you know, and what would have been a concept that was brushed away now actually is real. So the ability to uh, design solutions using concepts that are not within that industry is becoming more critical. So in many ways, I look at the next five years as not as just specialists ruling the world. I look at generalists with specialization ruling the world. Okay. And that maybe is where the world will go. I see what you're saying in terms of having design orientation, having that human touch and feel of it and combine that with behind the scene, having that engineering mindset into data and domain domain understanding. That, that is where your uh, you know, direction is. I would tend to agree in this. Yeah. The, the, one other angle to all of this is, I mean, I don't ever believe the value of the human is going to reduce. In fact, it's going to get accentuated with technology. The more and more we see technology, that there's going to be more and more value given to empathy. Yeah. So anything that can put empathy in the forefront of all human interactions will see success. So true. In fact, somebody was saying uh, how AI is going to rule the world. And they they take the example of how the AlphaGo was de defeating the board game. But behind the scenes, they talk about that a human being was having 12 ounces of coffee while the computer was having... 100 people working behind with tons and tons of uh, computing space. So I agree. I think ingenuity of human beings, even this current COVID situation, I think it's insurmountable. True. True. Thanks a lot think... for your time, Sundar. I know uh, I have been having so much of fun in this conversation. Thoughts that you want to leave the listener with? I mean, I think a lot, of, lot has been spoken about technology. I truly believe that we have to balance out our quest for knowledge on the technology side with our quest for knowledge on how to improve as humans. I think if we balance that out, and that's what I am trying to do, can and can I focus on learning? Can I focus on experimentation? Can I focus on creating a, you know, an ecosystem where I treat others like I treat myself? I think if this balance exists, I'm asking for too much, but if this balance exists, I think the world will be a much better place. And all of us will find happiness not necessarily success. Right? That note, thank you so much for be appearing in the Software People Story. Stay safe and stay healthy. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Gayatri. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Bye. Have a good day. We thank Siddharth for the music and Malavika for promoting the Software People Stories. If you like this episode, Please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.